Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we continue our series, Camping Out Against Devastating Budget Cuts at City College of San Francisco. We'll have here some students fighting the cutbacks uh, and more. Also, right-wing Democrats shut down a progressive candidate in Buffalo, New York, and public relations and the Ukraine war. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. And we are glad to have you along. And we are happy to welcome to the program two students, Heather Brandt is a CCSF student. These are City College uh, San Francisco students. Uh, she is a chancellor, student chancellor-elect and outspoken student activist. And also Jess Nugan uh, joins us. He is a in the florist department and a leading student activist against layoffs and cuts that would harm the college and decimate her program. Heather and Jess, it's good to have you with us. Heather, let me start with you. Uh, what's at the core for you? Why are you out there? Why are you camping out on your own campus? Yeah, thank you for having us. It's a great question. Um, I am fighting for our future, right? Not just mine, but the future of higher education and the access to opportunities for not just myself and current students, but future students. And and say a little bit more about why you think City College is a right fit for you. What is significant? What's unusual? What's uh, important about the school to you? Yeah, City College of San Francisco is incredibly important um, to many of us within the community for different reasons. I think a lot of times students go there looking to uh, find themselves or to change careers. And there are so many different programs uh, that have been offered that there is something for everyone. And so I think through the college, um, people end up finding themselves, their true passion and how they can really be an asset to society. Okay, also joining us is Jess, um, is a student at uh, the Forestry Department and leading student activist against the layoffs. Jess, welcome to Flashpoints. Um, what's, uh, for you, what's the important thing? Why is City College important? Why does it need to be supported? City College of San Francisco supports all residents in the Bay Area, whether they're taking ESL classes, non-credit business classes, uh, learning how to use QuickBooks or learning a vocational trade like culinary, forestry, environmental holder culture. We also have students that transfer. Um, our school is so important to our local economy because so many of our uh, city city uh, institutions actually hire directly from City College. Like our horticulture program uh, trains a lot of the parks and rec people that come through. And um, at least 80% of our professional florists and design companies are actually trained through City College of San Francisco. We have a national uh, known program, an international re renowned program. 
and students have been uh, mobilizing and rallying, getting support from our National American Floor Institute of Floor Floors Design, and also our uh, our uh, local SF Flower Mart in order to sustain the vocational training program that has been established for decades and to show that, uh, to the city college trustees that we are worth it, we matter. Um, we are important to the local economy and we cannot take these already established workforce programs and take them away from people. I hear, Jess, it's a very special place for uh, bilingual students from people who are trying to uh, make it, who have come in from another country, who are or even applying for citizenship, uh, that this uh, program makes it possible, sort of a, a bridge into the culture. Would you see it that way? Yes, absolutely. Um, my day job is actually supporting uh, local manufacturing and um, workforce development myself. And we work with a lot of local workforce organizations in San Francisco Bay Area that send so many job seekers to City College to learn the fundamentals of uh, conversational English and written English in order for them to be able to, um, you know, excel at their job or be hireable or learn these skills in order to um, live in society, and if we're not able to provide those services that are essential to our community for decades, then what is the city uh, trustees doing? Um, we need them to rescind the layoffs for tomorrow, and the students are rallying and doing everything in our power to convince four trustees to vote no on the layoffs. So then we're able to go ahead and um, offer these programs that are essential to our city and our community. Heather, why do you think it's important uh, that really people come back, come out like yourselves, really camping out, sleeping in, uh, trying to protect the university? What, what do you think is driving? Uh, do you think that um, uh, people feel uh, would feel the loss and are are really uh, committed to fighting for this uh, college? Absolutely, I think people are committed to to fighting, um, and you see that now. That's why people are showing up and, and staying on campus, whether it's faculty or students. And I do think we would feel the loss, and I feel like we already are feeling the loss. Like, there's been so many changes at City College of San Francisco. We can't afford to lose more than what we've already lost. Um, what we've lost shouldn't have been lost in terms of, like, class cuts. Um, because there, the more... The more that gets taken away from us, the fewer the opportunities. And I can, I can guarantee or I can assure that what is happening here is not limited to CCSF. We're talking about the future of higher education and the accessibility of it. And so what is happening here could happen anywhere. And that is why it, it should matter to absolutely everyone. And it is so important. Do you think, Heather, that the reason city officials... Are and folks uh, at the state level are coming to cut uh, CC uh, San Francisco State the uh, CC um, I'm sorry uh, CC City College because they don't have the support that that it's an easier uh, group of people to sort of marginalize uh, and disenfranchise um, are they sort of trying to choose an easy battle. You know, I don't know that I really think that that's the case. I think that 
CCSF is an incredibly successful institution and has been for a very long time. So if anything, it's more so to set an example. If this can happen here, trust me, it can happen anywhere. And that's the really scary part. And, and let me ask both of you. I'll start with you, um, Heather. Uh, I'm changing the subject a little bit, but your thoughts on the fact that the Supreme Court is moving to end uh, the right to have an abortion, really the right for women to have control over their own bodies. Do you have any thoughts on that? I was not prepared to be talking about this or answer this question, but I think what we're seeing is there is a whole lot of shifts in a bunch of different directions across the country. And I feel like we are just going back in time in a lot of different ways in a lot of areas, whether we're talking education or, you know, the desire to not support uh, women in the choices that they make for themselves. Um, we're really seeing, I feel like, what seems like history repeat itself. And um, it concerns me because we're not, we're not advancing or making progress or even maintaining. Um, and, and it's a, a quite difficult time. It's really scary. And, and Jess, I want to ask you uh, about the same situation that I asked uh, your fellow student there, and that is, do you think, why, why do you think they're coming after City College of San Francisco? Do they think it's easier to attack that than, say, San Francisco State or the University of California at Berkeley? Uh, apparently, they're uh, very well endowed, UC Berkeley, and they're not um, struggling for funds. But you guys are just trying to cut it, and you're getting cut. Your thoughts on that? Um yeah, I've been at City College since 2018. I actually came for a different vocational program, uh, not floristry, but they cut so many classes I wasn't able to complete it. And I changed to floristry because um, that was the program I decided to graduate with. Uh, from all the cuts and all the closures from different CCSF campuses, Fort Mason, downtown, Civic Center, um, some other locations on Gough Street, there have been a lot of uh, discussion. Why are the attacks happening to City College of San Francisco? Because it has a lot of great land. And there are a lot of people that haven't spoken up for students or for public education. And some people have said that maybe those people are developers and would like the land to uh, take away from City College to, you know, develop luxury condos. Our, our school had to fight... Um, Avalon Bay uh, for our parking lot across the street. It's not really a parking lot. It's a, a reservoir. And um, it's it's supposed to be for City College students, but um, our trustees sold us out as, as uh, students and said that they did not want to fight back. Um, so a lot of students are very upset. Some people think it's uh, tied to the land. Some people think it's tied to privatization um, and charter schools. And for me as a student, I'm trying to focus on what I can do next in the next 24 hours because we have four trustees that we need to convince to rescind a layoff because I'm not able to finish a two-year program if I'm, if, if I'm not able to, uh, to get the classes I need. Our faculty is being reduced by 50%. That means it takes a two-year program into a four-year program. And there's a lot of students that have been fighting for decades uh, about the downsizing. 
And the thing is, students just need to get involved and the community needs to get, and get involved just to help the rest of us out. We need to be employed. We need to move on. Um, and we need people to get involved as best they can. Wow. Well, that's uh, putting it down. Uh, I want to ask you, finally, just the same question I asked Heather. In terms of, I'm wondering how this uh, idea that the Supreme Court is going to end Roe v. Wade and a whole bunch of other things, if they have their way, has that been uh, a topic of discussion among you and your friends, among other students? How do you feel about that? Uh, Yes, it has been a definite discussion point. Uh, A lot of people are angry. I have um, medical professionals in my family, and we're all very, very disturbed. Um, I think this is a reminder for everyone that we need to get involved in every capacity we can, not just protesting, but to writing to legislature and also just openly talking to other people about how you can get civically involved. And this is why I'm choosing to focus right now on City College, because it's a local issue that I can help my neighbors and other people progress in life. And it's something that I can see the benefit directly in my community. Um, I, I, I'm definitely pro-choice, and I want everyone to have uh, autonomy. And um, I think it's, it's incredible that um, some people will uh, use their platform to disempower people and their bodies when they could, they could be doing something to help everybody. Wow. Well, uh, 30 seconds we have left, um, Jess. If you were sitting down with the influential trustees and you had a couple of minutes with them, what's, what, would, uh, what would you want them to really know about what's at the bottom for you? Uh, we have had a lot of trustees claim that they're for public education, for uh, vocational trade program, workforce development. I want to know why are they choosing to lay off faculty and reduce these programs that are obviously employing people and ignoring all of the public comments and the letters that students have been pouring in. We've gotten hundreds and thousands of signatures for our petitions. How come that students have to go into these public forums and promote our pain to get any attention? Our chancellor has not even addressed any of the personal problems from students and the academic um, Senate is trying to support us. Executive Student Council have all supported uh, the students against these cuts and are asking the trustees to rescind. I just want to know, what what are you really doing for students? If you're centering on students, why are you making these decisions and you're, you're going against what the mission of the college is? Beautiful. We're going to leave it right there. I want to thank you, Jess and Heather, students at... Uh, City College of San Francisco fighting uh, to keep that college viable and alive, an important institution in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, we do wish you the best of luck. And we've got the open door policy on this one. I'm going to have to come down there and join you for part of that uh, sit-in, fight-back operation that you got on the, uh, I guess that's on the campus on Ocean. Uh, We thank you for joining us. Stay safe. Come back soon. Uh, Come back with a victory story. That's what we're interested in. Uh, Be safe. We hope to. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. You you are very welcome. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Short break. Back with Dick Becker. We're going to talk about uh, publicizing, selling the war in Ukraine. Stay with us.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We welcome back to these airwaves Mr. Richard Becker. He's the Western Regional Coordinator of Answer, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. And he knows a great deal about the Middle East, about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Dick Becker, welcome back to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us. Thanks very much, Dennis. Well, uh, let's start, you know, clearly uh, the war, the U.S. war uh, against the Russians in uh, Ukraine is definitely getting a lot of support and it's getting a lot of publicity. I've never seen a war get so much publicity. What, What do you think is going on here? Well, it sure is. Uh, it sure is good in that publicity. And part of the reason for that, a large part of the reason, is that I read the other day, saw this the other day, and I was I was actually kind of shocked by it, that there's 150 U.S. PR firms that are working for the U.S. government and presenting to us, the people of the United States and the people of the world, their version of what's going on. Uh and so uh, that's that's a that's an amazing number. 150 PR firms they're covering everything every single day, and giving, of course, their spin. And I think it's important uh, for people who may not be old enough to remember this or may have forgotten it that a couple of things in the past. Uh, one was in 1990, uh, after Iraq invaded Kuwait, there was this story about the uh, the supposed. Uh, Iraqi troops coming into uh, maternity hospitals in Kuwait City and throwing Kuwaiti babies on the floor and taking their incubators. And the person who was um, presenting this version of what had happened there, uh, which turned out to be a complete fabrication, turned out to be the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. I ran into to them. Hill and Knowlton were the PR firm at that time taking her around. Uh, the story turned out to be completely false, completely made up. She wasn't a nurse. She didn't work in the hospital. Uh, this, this thing that they allege never happened. But Hill and Knowlton, and I think this is the important point, what Hill and Knowlton said at that time was, first impressions are everything. It doesn't matter to us what's refuted later. The first impressions are what rule. And just to add on to the baby story, um, clearly, uh, oh, to let people know, it was written by John MacArthur. If people want to check that out, it's an amazing story. And I, I remember a tearful testimony before Congress. It was one of the things uh, that was the final straw launching the U.S. into war. There always seems to be a story. In this case, with the babies in Kuwait, it wasn't even real, was it? Is that the only time you've ever heard of something like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was the Gulf of Tonkin and, and uh, you know, the, remember the man. That was the excuse to get into the Vietnam War, right? The Gulf of Tonkin was the fake right. uh, attack on a U.S. ship that allowed the United States to expand the war in Vietnam. Right. And, uh, of course, remember the Maine was the explosion of the Maine ship in 1898 that... Uh, Oh, Spanish-American uh, war. Yeah, yeah, the, the Spanish-American war, as we call it here, and uh, the uh, you know then the PR firm was actually Hearst and the Hearst newspapers. It was before there really was much in the way of PR firms, but they did the job then. And you know, in in 2011, 
to come up to more recent times. Uh, I don't know if if, uh, your listeners will remember, but at that time, in order to justify the war against Libya, which overthrew the government, tore the country apart, it's still torn apart and it's still in pieces today, was this story that uh, Muammar Gaddafi, the the leader of Libya, was giving his troops Viagra so that they could attack the eastern part of Libya and carry out mass rape. And then the war started, and that that allegation never surfaced again. But like the Hill and Knowlton PR firm says, first impressions are everything. And it created, uh, you know, a, a situation where people were saying, oh, it's just so terrible. I guess we have to do something. You know, the same refrain happens over and over and over again, and the something almost always turns out to be war. Yes, it does. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Richard Becker. He is the Western Regional Coordinator of ANSWER. And, uh, Dick, you have a lot of knowledge about what's going on in this region, the history of the region. It really has become a major point of censorship in terms of trying to get fair and balanced, if you will, information about the history, what led up to the war, so on and so forth. Um, You want to talk a little bit about that? It's, you know, for instance, having, say, Chris Hedges have his uh, all his work ripped down from RT, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, uh, all kinds of things are going on. It seems like censorship is deeper than it's ever been. What's your take on that? It is. There's no question about that. You know, I mean, this this thing that just happened with Consortium News and with Mint Press, where PayPal, uh, giving really no reason that anyone could understand, declares they can't. Their uh, their PayPal, uh, PayPal accounts are shut down, and not only that, but that they're probably going to keep their money. That PayPal is probably going to keep the money of Mint Press and and, uh, and Consortium News. I mean, Consortium News was founded by Robert Perry, uh, an award-winning, Pulitzer Prize award-winning journalist, and now followed by, <clears throat> after his untimely death, Joe Loria, another very reputable journalist who's questioning the official story. And it's not allowed now in the mainstream media. You can't find it virtually anywhere uh, to question the official story of what's going on and uh, what's going on in Ukraine today. And of course, if you say, <clears throat> if any of us say, okay, we're not against the war. We, we, we're not against, we were not in favor of the invasion. We weren't supporting it, but uh, we know what set up this crisis. And it was NATO and NATO is an instrument of the United States. And this is US foreign policy at work and you can see that by the vast amount of weaponry that the U.S. is pouring in, that they're, you know, this is a proxy war. It's not just a war between Russia and Ukraine now. The $33 billion now proposed additional military aid to Ukraine. And uh, they pretend Biden, Pelosi, who was just there, uh, Austin, the Secretary of Defense, and all of them, they pretend that they sympathize with the Ukrainian people, but the reality is they're willing to have the war go on. They're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian to achieve 
<clears throat> what Lloyd Austin revealed was the real aim. I mean, came right out and said it. Our goal is to weaken Russia. And they don't care how many Ukrainian lives or Russian soldiers' lives are, 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 are taken in pursuit of that objective, to weaken Russia. And that objective, is this something new? Follow that, that train a little bit back into history. Uh, I mean, it is unbelievable that, that uh, Finland is going to join NATO. Well, Finland, uh, Finland is a huge border, very close to the largest cities in Russia. If they, and uh, and the, the joining of NATO would uh, pose the same kind of threat, as grave a threat, as Ukraine joining NATO. And it was the refusal of the U.S. to negotiate. Uh, and to say over and over again, we know, you know, we're sure Russia is going to take military action. We're sure Russia is going to invade. They said that for months. <clears throat> and we, we wondered, well, how can they be so sure? Do they just have good intelligence? No. They intended not to have negotiations. They intended not to meet with. I think any reasonable person would say our, our, uh, our reasonable demands uh, that Russia was making that that Ukraine not join NATO and Ukraine not be the site of uh, weapons of mass destruction, conventional high-tech conventional weapons or nuclear weapons uh, that could be lined up along the Russia-Ukraine border and, uh, and launched with very little warning time to Russia. So the refusal to negotiate seriously to just say no, 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 no to what Russia's demands were uh, that's why they felt, yeah, there probably is going to be a war. And I think the U.S. leaders are pretty happy with the war, to tell you the truth. And certainly the military industrial corporations are extremely happy with this war. Well, that is amazing, Richard. The, the idea that they can never find milk money or lunch money <laughs> for poor kids. They can't yeah. come up with a couple of mil. But when... When it's time for war, there's just no end to the amount of resources uh, that you can bring to the table. Now, what are your thoughts, Richard? Um, everybody's talking rather glibly about whether there could be a possible, if you will, limited nuclear war. That in itself is an oxymoron. Um, but it, it really does seem that the U.S. is willing to walk around the edges of nuclear war to play that game, to throw those dice, and see what happens. Yeah, and they're coming out with things like the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, how to win a nuclear, how a nuclear war can be won. I mean, that is so horrifying. I mean, I've been to the Atomic Bomb Museum in Hiroshima, and which is, is... just a shocking experience to see to see what happened with one what would be considered a very small nuclear weapon today and the kind of devastation it did to the lives of i killed hundreds of thousands in hiroshima and nagasaki um hundreds of thousands more died from related diseases afterwards uh you know i'm from i'm from rochester new york which used to be kodak town uh and uh, after the first nuclear test at Trinity, nuclear bomb test at Trinity in New Mexico. Two months later, Kodak's film was being fogged 
and they couldn't figure out why. And finally, they figured out it was fallout from that nuclear test that took place, one nuclear test. So when we talk about a limited nuclear war, it is an oxymoron. Any kind of a nuclear war, and no one knows once it starts where it ends, uh, really poses a danger to life on the planet. Yeah, we people should check back. Uh, we did an interview with um, uh, the head of, um, I guess it's uh, the committee to prevent a nuclear war uh, and went through the dangers and how close we are. And there's no more room on that atomic clock put out by the bulletin for, uh, uh, of atomic scientists. They don't have any seconds left. We're all we're at 1201 uh, now <laughs> in terms of. The, yeah. the dangers of nuclear weapons. And I guess, Richard, the, the one of the things that makes it more possible, more viable, more uh, making the unthinkable more thinkable is the latest U.S. generation of nuclear weapons, which they like to call field nukes or pocket nukes or battlefield nukes, because people get the idea, well, you can throw a few of these around and get away with it, but it's not going to be that way. No, it's not going to be that way. That's just more of the, the weasel words of Washington, uh, of which they have so many. And, you know, they, uh, again, we can see that what the effect was of nuclear testing uh, in the atmosphere, uh, both the use of the bombs on people in Japan and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the testing and the impact that it had on the peoples of, of the South Pacific. I mean, the, and, and the idea that, you know, you could just, you can just limit this. No, it's uh, one bomb is going to create uh, terrible casualties. And that's not going to be one bomb in the case of, uh, of uh, a so-called limited nuclear war. And there's no, there's no way to see where it, if that begins, where it ends, um, that is anything except horrific for humanity. Dick, let me, I'm going to just take a couple of minutes to change the subject. I, I, I want to get your, I'm sure you've been thinking a lot about the, the end of Roe v. Wade and how that really opens up the floodgate to progressive policies and politics, you know, everything uh, right now, everything is on the table, including whether uh, black people are going to be allowed to marry white people uh, in America. Women are going to face being prosecuted for as murderers if they try and seek out an abortion in the way in the wrong way. I mean, we, all the things that progressives like yourself have fought for for so many years are hanging in the balance now. Yeah, they certainly are. And and this is something we've said for a long time, that even the most progressive reforms and most important reforms are subject to uh, revocation as long as we live under this system. Uh, but we have to fight this one. We really have to fight this one, and we have to fight it now. Like I, I would just say, you know, we're part of... Uh, uh, groups that are calling for uh, another round of demonstrations this coming Saturday uh, against the attacks on reproductive rights. And we'll be at Powell and Market at noon on Saturday, 12 noon on Saturday at Powell and Market. And we, <clears throat> people got to come out now and fight. We got to fight. We got to really fight. We were very encouraged by what happened on Tuesday, the same day demonstrations in 
80 or 100 cities that took place, and particularly the overwhelming participation in the demonstration in San Francisco of youth, of young people, probably two-thirds young women, but a lot of young men as well. Uh, but we got a lot more that we got to do because if we don't fight against it, then it's, we're going to be rolled over. All right. Okay. Uh, we're going to leave it there for now, Mr. Becker, but uh, these are going to be difficult times coming up, and we're going to be talking a lot about uh, what's happening in the streets and uh, what's necessary to hold back the Supreme Court from really putting us back into the the dark ages. Um, that's what they want. Yep. That's what they're going for, and it is yep. frightening. Thanks, Dick. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks very much, Dennis. Sure. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Short musical break. And then uh, our friend and senior producer, Miguel Gavilan Molina, uh, has a few comments for It's Cinco de Mayo. Stay with us. people defeated a much better equipped French army that had known no defeat as it conquered Europe. Even though Cinco de Mayo has limited significance nationwide in Mexico, the date is observed in the United States and Aslan as a celebration of Mexican heritage and pride. As we approach this distinctively Chicano holiday, Cinco de Mayo we cannot help but take notice of mainstream society's acceptance of this festive occasion through the commercialization of Mexican cultural heritage by alcoholic beverage companies and other profiteering enterprises. This brazen and racially stereotypic exploitation of Chicano-Mexican cultural pride ignores the importance of Cinco de Mayo, both historically and symbolically, to the Mexican-Latino communities as a day of cultural expression and pride. Cinco de Mayo is much more than tacos, burritos, ballet folcóricos, mariachi bands, and Latin rock. It is a time to reflect and celebrate our cultural survival and to reaffirm our defiance and resistance against tyranny and domination. I can't help but notice how this country and its government keeps beating down our people and the working poor. It's time to wake up, America, from your collective slumber. The most dominant demographic feature in this country is the growth of La Raza. Yet we ain't nothing but a second class of burro slaves ready to sweat and be exploited. We are those who are dependent upon selling our labor in the marketplace. We are the largest segment in the working class. We constitute 90% of the world's population and the majority population in this country's working force. 
We are the greatest human force in this country and the world. Anything we choose to do can be easily done. That's not just salsa and chips. That is reality. We can break out of the chains of bondage, of social domination, that is, wage and debt slavery. We could operate the existing means of production at 100% of capacity, 24-7, and easily provide a truly equal lifestyle for everyone in this country and the planet. This may seem like an impossible dream, but it isn't really, given that we occupy and operate that labor force and its means of production every day of our working lives and our role as wage slaves. Each of us as individual needs to recognize and understand that we live in a class-divided world and that the private owners of the means of production are in fact our enemies and we need to replace them. We need to understand that the first step in replacing them is to replace their government and replacing it with a workers' government of our own, a government that would impose and enforce production to meet human needs as a social mandate. Capitalism has ceased to play any progressive role for the vast bulk of humanity. It has already served a historic purpose to lay down the material foundation for socialism. We will build on the technology and productivity of labor achieved by humanity under capitalism in order to build a new society free of exploitation and based on the common interest of the working class and la raza. Their system is increasingly incapable with the continued existence of humanity itself. We can either replace it with the workers' control of the means of production on a world scale or the entire centuries-long experiment of human civilization can be thrown into a very violent and horrific upheaval. The options are clear. There are two incompatible classes in today's world. Workers, that is us, who constitute 90% of the population on the one hand, and those other Damn people, those silver spoon elite on the other. Only one class can rule. The best interest of humanity and the earth depends on us. So the message today is, Si se puede y que viva Cinco de Mayo in its struggle and mission to overcome tyranny and domination. Your waiter. 
we are delighted to welcome to these airwaves for the first time India Walton. Uh, Walton emerged uh, last year as a powerful presence in the progressive movement after a stunning uh, Democratic primary victory over a 16-year incumbent mayor of Buffalo. She's now senior strategic organizer for RootsAction.org. She's leading the Roots Action campaign without student debt. And uh, we're going to be talking about that, debt shaming, and a whole bunch of other economically related stories. India Walton, welcome to Flashpoints. Thank you so much for having me, Dennis. I'm happy to be here. Well, it is good to have you with us. And before we leap into your expertise here, I, I need to get uh, your uh, reading on what happened. The idea that the Supremes are headed uh, to cancel Roe v. Wade, and really that's only the beginning. Your thoughts? Oh, my goodness. You know, I just don't know if the Democratic Party could disappoint me anymore. Um, We've long had many opportunities to codify Roe v. Wade. We have a trifecta of majority in Congress and in the executive branch, and still nothing has been done. And, uh, you know, our leadership is not powerless, right? We can definitely end the filibuster. Um, We can definitely pass bills that matter to the American people, Roe v. Wade being one. And I'm like, I, I just think that so many folks are just tired of the status quo and the upholding of this lackluster leadership that we've been experiencing. Wow. And I mean, just uh, to cut you loose a little bit more, it's safe to say you believe the Democrats have essentially uh, been out of town when the crime was being committed. Uh, we saw this. There were many opportunities, as you point out. What's with the Democrats? Where have they been? Is there you any know, hope? I I am struggling to find the hope, right? I remain hopeful. I'm an organizer in my bones, in my DNA. Um, but it's, it's really a, a very dismal time in um in american history and for our party and i think that what we need to do is really dig our feet in and galvanize and bring challenges from the left um there should be no corporate democrat that goes unchallenged and just doing enough just doing the bare minimum isn't enough anymore and you know we need people average everyday people to stand up to step out and to be brave and bold and primary some of these folks we've allowed to languish in seats just warming them and not really moving and acting on our priorities if you had a uh, three minute sit down uh with the president and the vice president what would you want to tell them what do you what, what, what do they need to hear i mean what do they really need to hear <laughs> They need to hear that as the de facto leaders of the Democratic Party, if they do not cancel student debt, if they do not pass Build Back Better, if they do not um, whip those votes and use their power and leverage their power to ensure that people's bodily autonomy is protected, then they're going to lose the Democratic majority in the midterms and probably even the presidency. 
All right. Uh, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. That's Indy Walton. She works with Risk Action. She has organized the campaign without student debt. Uh, she also talks about a, a subject that I am extremely interested in, debt shaming. Uh, that's uh, something that uh, if you're a working class kid, you know all about. Uh, if you've seen your house be uh, um, repossessed, you sort of know what all this looks like. Um, talk to us. Talk about debt shaming and the implications uh, for student debt. Why is it such a crucial issue? It's a crucial issue because debt shaming has prevented a lot of our best and brightest talent to remain on the margins and in the shadows of society when these should be the people who are out front leading, right? Um, We've been sold this notion that the people who are best suited to budget for the popular majority are folks who are wealthy, who are privileged, who don't have the issues. And I brought up in this op-ed that's been featured on Common Dreams and uh, various other websites that people who had to make the choice between paying a credit card bill or paying their student loans and feeding their family or paying for life-saving medical treatment are the ones who are best poised to make decisions, financial decisions, on behalf of the working class, the working poor, the 99% of us who don't have everything. Um, Who better suited to make these decisions than a person who is barely scraping by and making ends meet? Um, For example, in New York State, our governor just passed a $220 billion budget and gave $650 million to a person that owns an organization, the Buffalo Bills, that's worth $6 billion, right? But we're not making investments in affordable housing, infrastructure, education, and healthcare where that money desperately is needed. So I, I think that, like, when we talk about how we've painted a picture, a portrait of people who owe debt that is often illegitimate, no one should have to be in debt for the rest of their lives because they pursued higher education. No one should be in debt for the rest of their lives because they had cancer and needed medical treatment. These are illegitimate debts, um, and I think that canceling student debt is the first step in having a broader conversation about how the financial system and financial institutions have preyed upon poor and working class people for far too long. Uh, I believe you just uh, did a piece actually in uh, Common Dreams that you talk and you wrote about, uh, I'm quoting now, uh, debt shaming uh, has dampened democracy. When I ran for mayor of Buffalo, New York last year, my past due parking tickets became a major reason for reduced favorability among voters. When Stacey Abrams ran for governor of Georgia in 2018, there was a lot of talk in the mainstream media about how much debt she was in. I mean, it, it's, you know, it harkens back to debt as prison. We know that uh, prison, generally speaking, prisons in America are debtors' prisons. Oftentimes, it comes down to that. So this is a this is a big, uh, deep issue. Give us some other examples of uh, how debt shaming has manifest and uh, undermines uh, the possibilities that people uh, can have. Sure. I mean, we can talk about cash bail, right? Um, You can have two folks who commit the same alleged crime and one person, because they have 
greater financial stability is able to post bail and has the benefit of the assumption of innocence, right? They come to court in yes. a suit um, with their attorney. And on the other hand, the person who is not allowed to post bail comes in an orange jumpsuit. So there's already the perception of guilt. Um, because you have already characterized this person as criminal when they've not been convicted of anything. Um, the the list just goes on and on and on. And this whole notion that somehow people who owe debt are lazy, um, are evil, and undeserving of care from our government, and somehow wealthy people are hardworking and um, superior is a lie that we've been sold. And I think that we have to have more conversation at kitchen tables and in colleges and universities and in libraries and in the line at the grocery store about how those things are false. Um, they are not reality. And the majority of us owe some form of debt or another, whether it be students, 45 million Americans plus owe student debt, whether that be medical debt or whether that be consumer debt. It's illegitimate. It's wrong. And, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't be punishing people for not having all of the advantages of generational wealth that we know is racist, systemic, and economically dis- disparate for so many people in, in this country. Well, why uh, Biden came out with the figure, it seemed that it was pretty low in terms of forgiving student debt. But how, how important is it for him to up the ante? And why do you think uh, he's trying to hold back on a couple of million bucks when he seems to be able to find a hundred million here and a hundred and eighty million there <laughs> and two hundred forty billion there to send new weapons? out around the world um, and he's, he is bragging that you know, even in Ukraine they're naming their children after our weapons but I think uh, there needs to be other priorities so true in the words of the late great Tupac Shakur we have money for wars but can't feed the poor you know I think that this, this stall tactic these lower and lesser amounts is meant to placate um, to drive people to still continue to vote Democrat when we know that we're not asking for forgiveness, right? Asking for forgiveness ultimately means that the recipient has done something wrong, and it's not the debtor who is wrong. It's not those who owe student loans who are wrong. It's the Department of Education. It's the private colleges and universities. It's the increase in inflated tuition. It's the student loan servicers. Like, they are the ones who should be asking us for forgiveness. We're asking for cancellation of all student debt that's federally guaranteed. It uh, doesn't look like Joe is all that interested. Uh, he's uh, He really has been um, surprisingly uh, unwilling to up the uh, ante there. It's hard to figure out uh, what is going on. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. What's going on is we're speaking with India Walton. India Walton, you actually had... Uh, a, a stunning Democratic primary victory uh, over a 16-year incumbent uh, incumbent mayor of Buffalo. Um, what did you learn, and what should be we be looking for in our candidates? Sure. So <laughs> this is an amazing story, and I know that we have limited time, but just go on, go for it. With an all-volunteer staff as a political novice, this is my first time ever running for office, I ran on the issues that mattered most to Buffalonians. 
And my opponent refused to debate me, refused to even acknowledge that I was a contender, and he lost the primary election. I was the Democratic nominee, the duly elected Democratic nominee for mayor of Buffalo in a city that is 65% Democrat. So for all intents and purposes, I should have been the next mayor. However, once I won the primary, he got with the Republicans, members of the far right, and known members of white supremacist groups, including, you know, the real estate lobby and the police union to mount a writing campaign. So I lost the general. But what this proves is that all Democrats are not created equal, right? I won fair and square in a primary against a Democratic contender. And rather than fostering in a new generation of fresh leadership that is going to do the things that people really want, he went above and beyond and colluded with who we claim as our opposition to continue to enclose power and wealth and keep equality and justice out of the city of Buffalo. So I think the lesson that I learned is that we shouldn't be trying to play nice, right? Like this narrative that the left is somehow destroying the Democratic Party is a lie. Uh, The Democratic Party is eating itself alive because we keep putting them in office and they are not doing the work that we are putting them there to do. So um, again, like I said before, we need people to run from the left as far left as you can get and challenge every single damn seat. That's amazing. And (laughs) say a little bit about what you hear. This is a major city, Buffalo, on the East Coast. Uh, Here you were, you had won the Democratic primary and you lost on a write-in vote, you're saying that there were all kinds of support for your Democratic opponent, extreme right-wing support. Well, where were the, where was the rest of the Democratic Party? Didn't they want a new, young, uh, 21st century mayor in the Democratic Party? I'm thinking that's the big problem here. They don't have anybody who's, uh, you know, who can remember what the future is supposed to be. You know, I I really couldn't make these things up if I tried. The state, the head of the state Democratic Party, Jay Jacobs, said that he didn't feel obligated to endorse me because it would be like him endorsing David Duke, um, the grandmaster of the KKK. Right. Um, You know, I I didn't get support from the Democratic governor of the state. I did get support, though, from Chuck Schumer, from Kirsten Gillibrand, our our Senate delegation. It was it was really messy. Um, But this whole narrative of, of vote blue, no matter who, only applies to corporate Democrats who are bought by the corporate lobby by the pharmaceutical insurance companies and real estate lobby. It doesn't apply to those of us who are really working boots on the ground from the grassroots level to create real change that working class people really desire. And, you know, I will just add that, like, popular opinion and progressive values resonate across party lines, right? Like, working class Republicans want the same thing that working class Democrats do. And we're being tricked into being divided by the top 1%, and we have to stop that. We have to have more conversations about what the class struggle means in this country and how we leverage our power and our votes 
to make sure that we get the things that we actually need, which is health care, which is education, which is housing, clean air, clean water, and food, <laughs> basic things. Do you fear that if we continue down this direction uh, that uh, the democracy as we know it and as we're trying to hold on to it might disappear? Uh, are we at a crucial crossroads? Do you see it that way? I think we are at a critical point and we are watching democracy disintegrate in front of our own eyes. I mean, the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe versus Wade, right? Like, if we don't act now, um, we have to come fast and hard at this. Uh, we, we have to really present some sort of viable alternative to what is happening because what I fear most is not that the GOP is going to just take over, which they it's, it's likely that they will, but also that people are beginning to just lose hope, um, um, lose hope in the leadership of our nation. And we can't just say that electing Democrats is enough anymore because they're not working on our behalf. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for now. But India Walton, uh, we've got the open door policy for you. Anytime you want to come on back uh, and enlighten us some more, uh, just knock on the door and I'll be the first there to open it up and let you in. Uh, we want to let people know that you're now a senior strategic organizer for Roots Action. Uh, you're working on the campaign without student debt. Uh, and uh, really uh, a pleasure to have you with us. Please stay safe and come back. Thank you so much. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.